Well, our question this evening, we're actually going to knock out two. Going to get a two for one. Numbers 9 and 10. Remember, our question last week was how does God execute his decrees? How does he carry out what he intends to do? And we said that he does that through creation and providence, through making all things and ordering all things. Today, our first question is number nine. And here's the question as stated. What is the work of creation? If that's how he carries out his will and his plan, then, or part of it, then what is it? What is creation? Well, here's the answer. The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Now, let's first pull this apart. What is not creation? Creation is not something that you and I can do. Now, you're hearing something that I would say, maybe I created in the back. That little baby screaming and yelling <laughs> in the back. But did I actually create that baby? Did Ann and I create? No, we didn't create that baby. We don't create new life. We just duplicate. And we don't create art projects either. We're second causes, not first causes. Why is that? Why is it that we create? Because I had to have material in my body, and Anna had to have material in her body already existing in order for that baby to come. And if I'm going to paint a picture on the wall... What do I have to have already? Paint, paintbrush, and a material to put it on. So I'm not creating. What am I really doing? I'm rearranging matter that already exists. It was already there, and I just arrange it in a way that you say is pretty. But I didn't really create that. I just rearranged that in a way that was pleasing. So that's not what creation is. But what is then creation? Well, the church has always said from from forever is that creation is ex nihilo that's latin for out of nothing ex nihilo out of nothing and that's how god created it the work of creation is god's making all things out of nothing now let's do a thought experiment real quick imagine nothing put nothing into your brain you can't when you when you're imagining nothing think about it what do you think about when you think about nothing? When I do this with high school kids and your high kids, like, well, I think about, you know, like an empty room. I'm like, well, there's still a room there. Well, I think about just black space. Well, that's a color. Black is a color. I mean, space is something that you can be in and exist. I mean, we cannot think of nothing. We can't comprehend nothing because as soon as you think about anything, you're thinking about something. You're not thinking about nothing. But that's what the Bible says. It got out of nothing. There was nothing there. We can't even think of nothing. Whenever we try to, we put something in our mind because we can't handle it. We can't handle nothing. But that's what God did. He created out of nothing, ex nihilo. Now that means that he gave being to something that did not have being already. That's you and me. We're human beings, right? We didn't have being before. God gave it to us. The existence had to be given from one who already existed. That's what creation really means. And that's how we created everything in the universe on all of its inhabitants, except for one thing. One thing didn't get created totally ex nihilo. You think of who that is? It's Adam and Eve, right? So there's another th way that we talk about creation, it using matter naturally unfit. So out of nothing or using matter naturally unfit. So how did God create Adam? Piles up some dirt, dust of the earth, 
blows life into it. Now, if you went outside, found some dirt, piled it up, and blew in it, what would you get? You get dusty in your face, and you'd swallow that junk down your throat, like Ron did at my house the other day, fixing my pipes. He had to get something out of the pipes, and he got it in his mouth. That, that's where you'd end up if you were trying, not trying to do that, because guess what? Air and dirt don't make people. Well, let's say, okay, well, I wanna, I'm not going to try to make a man. I'm going to try to make a woman. So I'm going to knock out some male, suck, cut open his gut, pull out a rib, and then I'm going to make a female out of that. Well, you can take all the bones you want, and you're not going to make a woman out of that. So that's what the church is called naturally unfit, that it doesn't work that way, so that it's obviously creation. But he's using objects like that naturally unfit because dirt and bones do not make human beings. But that's what God used like that. So it's like making, verse, compare the idea of making lemonade out of lemons and sugar. That's usually how it works, right? Like if I want lemonade, combine those two things. This would be using matter naturally unfit. That's like I'm going to make lemonade out of motor oil and playground sand. That's not how you make lemonade. And if you put it together, you ain't going to end up with lemonade. So that's the first thing, making all things out of nothing. Now the second thing is, by the word of his power, creating by speaking. This is how God creates, by speaking. He spoke, and what wasn't there was there. Now, now think about this. Go back to the idea of nothing. When I, tell, when I command something, I'm talking to something that could happen, right? If I'm like, hey, if I'm sitting in the back seat, saying, make a left turn here. I'm giving commands, and something, the driver, is responding to it. Or if I tell my dog, sit. I'm giving a command and something is there and then it obeys what I say, right? But God's speaking and nothing is there. And then nothing obeys what he said and comes into being and then obeys. I mean, this is, we're talking about magnanimous reality of creation. Matter that didn't exist obeyed what command God gave it. Came into the existence. There didn't used to be light and light wasn't just waiting around. Man, I hope I get to play soon. I've been sitting around here forever. When am I going to get in the game? God wasn't like, okay, I'm going to take this light that was already here, throw it up in the air. He, didn't, he just said, let there be, and what wasn't there obeyed the command that was there. This is the power of God speaking. This is God's words speaking. That's why we read Psalm 33. Beautiful psalm, but we're just going to look at a few verses from it, particularly just verses 6 and 9. We'll, have to, we'll put up there 6 through 9. But how does it, if we're going to look at somewhere else besides, the, besides Genesis, how does God create by verse 6? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers them up. Let all the earth fear the Lord. And then verse 9. He spoke and it came to be. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now what does, that, what does verse 9 not say? He spoke and it started moving. Things started going. The ball started spinning. He spoke and it came to be. It doesn't say he commanded and it, it was moving. The process was going. The top started spinning. No, it stood firm. It was there as is. That's how God creates. I mean, this is just another part of the Bible explaining it to us. It was created in totality. It doesn't say he spoke and it, be, it was begun. He spoke and it was done. That's what he's saying in, in Psalm 33. It wasn't begun by his words. It was totally accomplished by his words. Now think about that usage there. By the word of the Lord. Can you think of somewhere else where something significant is called the word? 
John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what happens? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. The Word is a Him. And, all, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. So the Word of the Lord created in Psalm 33. And then Jesus shows up a couple millennia later, or, or maybe centuries by the time Psalm 33 is written. And then now you get it. You're like, hey, full circle, right? This Jesus is God. He's called the Word. God made everything through the Word, so it makes sense that Jesus is the Creator. But that's how He speaks. Now then think about this. In all of the miracles that Jesus does, can you think of ones that deal on the level of creation? He uses matter naturally unfit. Have you ever once been like, you know what, I'm going to put this bowl of water in the fridge. Tomorrow, we're going to have wine. So just you wait. Tomorrow, we're going to have a great meal. I'm going to put it with our fettuccine. It's going to be awesome. No, you don't make water into wine. And then, but think about this. What, what, what other recreative miracles? He takes a, a paralytic, and then what can that guy do after he's healed? He's not been able to walk his whole life. Thinking about the one in Mark that's lowered through the, through the roof. What does he do? Rolls up that bed, goes skipping off down the road. Now, if you've ever seen somebody whose legs haven't worked in decades, what do they look like? Pencil sticks that can't carry any weight, let alone the weight of a bed in the first century. We're not talking an REI down sleeping bag. This is a mat from the first century. He can carry that weight because when he says you, your legs work, they do. And what about the blind person that we looked about this morning in John chapter 9? I just want to rub mud on your eyes. I mean, if you went and tried that, you go down to the hospital, they're going to kick you out. That's not how we deal with ocular degeneration. But he matters unfit. Jesus is doing these miracles in line with creation as the word. And God created by the word. It's all these things connected. One of my favorite things to do at period with the Bible is to show everyone it's all connected. This is not just random smatterings of stories and gatherings and poetry. It's all one author. This is one book. So you can connect Genesis 1 to Psalm 33 to John 1 to John 9. And then again to Revelation, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Everybody following me so far? You with me? Okay. Now we're going to get into six days. Have you ever asked the question, why did God take six days? Why didn't he just speak it all into a moment? I mean, did he need a break? That's enough. That's union break. Like, we're just going gonna to cut it right here. I'm not doing any more work today because I'm tired. Well, God can't get tired. He doesn't need sleep. So why six days? Like, why, even if where you stand on what those six days were, why six units? I'm six days, literal six days, 24-hour days. But why? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but why six? Why spread it out? If he could just do it, why didn't he just, I mean, clearly he's just speaking and everything's happening. Why didn't he just go light, heaven, earth, land animals, or, or land and sea, land animals, birds, fish, done. All, let's just do it all in a minute. Let's not take six days. Why six days? Well, church has understood two major reasons. One is like what Calvin, John Calvin says that in the Bible, God's speaking baby talk to us, just kind of babbling. Like, or just kind of saying, hey, here you go. You're going to figure these things out. I'm going to spread it out so you can understand it a little bit. I did these things on this day. 
these things on this day, these things on this day. So I can see a progression. And if you look at the six days of creation, you see the theater made and then the actors made for it, right? They parallel each other. He makes the ocean, then he fills it with fish. He makes the land, he fills it with animals. He makes the skies, and he fills it with the sun, moon, and stars. So he's like laying it all out. I'm, this is an orderly thing. And then secondly, it gives us a way to imitate him. We talked about this last Sunday evening. Uh, but working six days and resting on the seventh, we all know God didn't need to rest. So what was the point of that? It was modeling for us. Us doing things. And that's the same reason why I eat vegetables at my own house. So that my kids will eat it. Now, because I have to, I don't have to. I'm a grown-up now. I don't have to eat vegetables. I don't need vegetables. I can get all my nutrients from gummy bears. <laughs> my kids do. So I eat them so that they imitate me. God's laying this out. That, that Otherwise, there's no reason to use six days and rest on the seventh. That should show us how important the Sabbath day is, right? It goes back to creation, not Moses. And then lastly, the six days, contrary to evolution. We're going we're to dabble a little bit in this, but if you want more of this, come at 9 a.m. Sunday mornings. Mark Axelson is teaching a class on this very issue. How do we wrestle with evolution and creation in the world that we live in? But here's, for 1,858 years, the church was unified that six days was creation evolution wasn't even an issue what happened in 1858 years what what was published in 1858 the origin of the species chuck darwin son of a or disgruntled son of a minister wrote that book so there's other ex theories that exist now day age gap theory all these things that exist but here's how the church has always understood it if you just have a bible and you're not trying to please a culture of any kind, and you just say, well, it says there was evening and morning one day. There was evening and morning a second day. Evening, you just look outside, you're like, well, that's how it normally happens, about 24 hours most of these days, so that's what it probably is. But then when you're trying to see, like, well, we want a little respectability. The only reason that you'd get anything else, any other idea, is because, ah, they're telling me something different out here, so maybe I can make it fit here but six days is what it says the only one so day age gap theory all those things we can have those discussions the one untenable absolutely untenable position on creation is theistic evolution and the reason why is because of romans 5 12 you know romans 5 12 i didn't write did i write that one down for you barb can you put it up there just real quick romans 5 12 this kills any kind of evolution they say god started the process of evolution and then got to where we are. Here's why. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. So when does death come in? At Adam's sin. What does evolution built upon? Billions of years of death before you ever get to a human being. So billions of years of bloodshed and violence and fighting. So how can God, one, say that's a good creation? That is very good. He can't say that because that's not good. That's death and violence and fighting. That's, so the, what's the companion book to Origin of the Species? Survival of the fittest, right? The strong survive. How? By killing the weak ones. So you can't have any death before sin, and Adam doesn't sin until you get to Adam or you get to, get to man, the peak of evolution. You've got to have billions of years of death underneath that. So that throws that out right there. We can't have anything, because, well, anything like that because sin 
precedes death. Death doesn't precede sin. That's all we're going to talk about today. Although, no, I got one more. Here we go. This is the last one on this. Do we think that God's going to take billions of years to recreate heaven and earth at the end of the age? How long are we going to wait for the new heavens and the new earth to get here? Well, if he can, ma- if he can not magically, if he can miraculously recreate the new heavens and the new earth, then why couldn't he do that in Genesis? If we believe it in Revelation, why don't we believe it in Genesis? That's another contradiction that we see there. So anyways, there we go. Now, then the last thing that the question answers is that it was all very good. We talked about that a little bit with, with um, the contrary to evolution issue, but very good. What does very good mean? It means utterly void of evil, error, or deficiency. So when God looks at his creation, he doesn't go, ah, man, I was rushed. I only had a week. So well, that's pretty good for a week. I mean, that's not bad, bad, bad effort for a week. No, he says, this is exactly how I want it. Void of error, void of evil, and void of deficiency. It wasn't anything that he could have beefed up and made better. It wasn't anything that wasn't all the way complete. There wasn't any kind of kernel of evil. There wasn't any kind of error code written in. That's what very good means. Evil and pain broken systems all that is the result of sin itself or the consequences of the presence of sin here's how the puritan thomas benson said it he said god made man good and happy man made himself sinful and miserable sums it up pretty good puritans have a way of just cutting right through the butter god made man good and happy man made himself sinful and miserable so there's nothing wrong with the creation when god made it sin was brought in through our first parents adam and eve but In those six days, there's nothing inherently faulty or flawed at all. All right, that's that question nine. Anybody anybody got questions on question nine? Anything anything you want to throw out there? All right, we'll move on. Oh, Greg's got one. (laughs) Literal Adam. You know, when I was in seminary for the first round at at, uh, uh, Southwestern in Fort Worth, my prof, Old Testament prof, didn't believe in literal Adam. Adam was a hominid group. That existed somewhere in northwest Africa, northeast Africa. So it's out there. All right, question number 10. How did God create man? So if he's the peak of creation, he meaning all of mankind, peak of creation, how did God create man? The answer, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. This is the kind of question that... You wind the clock back 60 years, we don't even have to talk about. You don't even really have to bring it up, at least in the Western world, in the United States. Well, Europe, you might have to wind the clock back 100 years. We don't even have to debate this. Like, how did God make man? Well, he made a male and female after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion over the creatures. But now we've got to spend some time to really dig into this as to this is, what does this mean? What does this stand for? So the first thing, male and female. Here we are in 2021, and we have to say God only created two genders. We have to say that because of gender fluidity, or you can be this or the, you can just make it all up. But God made two, two. We have to say that now, and we should, we must. And what is two gender? I mean, how does it have, how does it picture the creature-creator distinction if there needs to be two genders? Doesn't it show our finiteness that without a woman, then I'm without a helper. Without a man, the woman is without 
the, the leadership, but without both of us, we all die and it's over. That we that we're not we're not we need compatibility. We need complementarity. We need each other for help and support and for the propagation of mankind. So God made two out of His sovereign choice. Now then you get into the image of God. So He made male and female in His image. So God says my image is not rightly portrayed unless there is male and female. I don't know if we've thought about that a whole lot because because God is is male and father son holy spirit male but god says i'm not rightly imaged in creation unless i have a male and female it's incomplete without it my image is not complete unless there's both he needed and wanted both in order for his image to be rightly born so we see the image of god in the maleness of men that we don't see and the femaleness of women and reverse. We see the image of God and the femaleness of females that we don't see in the maleness of men. We need both to rightly image God. Otherwise, it's incomplete picture. So then secondly, the image of God is not a physical likeness. God doesn't look like us. We look like him, but not physically. Not, it's not the reality. So this image idea... If we could put up a picture of like a bowl of fruit, the thing that you always paint in like ninth grade art class, we put an image up there, you'd be able to say, what is that? You would say, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a white paper canvas that uh, 30% is covered with red paint, 40% is covered with yellow paint, and then, the, and then 15% is covered with purple paint. You wouldn't say that. You would say, that's a bowl of fruit. But what's different between that and a real bowl of fruit? One, it's, we're talking three-dimensional three versus two-dimensional. That doesn't actually look like a real banana, particularly if you were in my art class in ninth grade and I was the one drawing it. You'd be like, ah, that kind of is yellow and bendy. That, that's probably a banana. Good try. It wouldn't look exactly like it, right? So this, it, we're not comparing the, the actual bowl to the picture. We compare the picture to the bowl, right? How, how good your painting is is how much it looks like the real thing. But even the best of paintings, even a photograph, is limited. You can't get it all the way there. So it's not a physical imagery. So that's where the picture analogy kind of falls apart. It's an inward imagery, right? Because God's a spirit. John 4, God is a spirit. And those who worship him worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't have body parts like we do, physical form. But he has a soul. So we have souls unlike the rest of creation. It's a big difference between us and animals, right? And, and even kids can pick up on that. Little kids go, well, wait, they can't believe in Jesus. They don't, you know, they don't know. So we have souls, but our souls have the capacity for, as the question's answer says, knowledge, righteousness, dominion, and holiness. And we're going to break down those four. First one is knowledge. Knowledge at creation, at, what did Adam and Eve know? Think about what they knew. They knew God, right? Walking with him in the cool of the day. They knew his law, right? The moral law is written on their hearts, but he also has one, one law. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else do they know? They know his creatures because who is commanded to understand, categorize, and name them? Adam, so he knows that. And they know peace and happiness, don't they? They know only peace and happiness. That's all that exists. That's what they know. And then 
humans retain that knowledge even now. But we have knowledge. So in, in the fall, the creation is effaced, but not erased. So the image of God in us is effaced, but not erased. It's not gone. It's still there. So we still do have the capacity for knowledge. So let's compare that to animals, because I know we all got kitty cats and dogs and birds or lizards or whatever you got, and you think, well, that, that, that dog just knows me. Man, he, he knows what I'm doing. Or that cat, man, she knows what I'm doing, and she's plotting to just eat me alive in the middle of the night. That's, that's what cats are doing, by the way. Uh, you can take a wolf and make him a pet, but you can't take a lion and make him a pet. That's all I'm saying. So, but what do animals do? They modify behavior and respond to conditions, right? That's what you can do with an animal. They can't really know anything, and they can make cause and effect relationships work for them, right? The dolphin can go and push his beak up against the button, and then a dead fish flops in the water, and they get to eat it, right? Cause and effect, I can make that work. Every time I push this, I get what I want. That's not real knowledge. It's just learned behaviors. They don't truly know anything. So think about my, my dog, Dodger. He's 12 years old, and he's not named after the baseball team, the Dodgers. Just want to make that clear. He's named after Roger the Dodger Stallback, Dallas Cowboys quarterback, greatest of all time. Just so you know, there's been confusion out there. He, know, he doesn't know that refraining from relieving himself in my house pleases me. He doesn't know that. He just knows that if I refrain from relieving myself inside the building, I don't get thrown outside the building. Because when he was a puppy, that's what happened. He started going to the bathroom, pick him up by the scruff of the neck, throw him out the door. And then he realized quickly, hey, if I wait and hold this, I stay inside and I don't go outside. He doesn't know I'm going to hold this in as, with all my might because it's just going to make my master so happy. He loves it when I do that. He doesn't know that. It's just cause and effect, right? I'm not doing this because I don't want to go outside. It's hot out there. I don't want to go. So that's different. That's the difference between knowledge and modified behavior that we image God and animals do not, including the intelligent animals like chimpanzees and apes and gorillas and things like that. That's just advanced learned behavior. Just, if I get a stick, I can get more ants out of this hole. I just want to eat. And this stick works for me right now. So that's number one. That's right. That's Noah. Knowledge. Righteousness. So Adam and Eve were created in righteousness. What does that mean? They had a disposition towards what is right. What was right? They were created to give God what he deserved, and they had the ability to not sin. That's significant. They had the ability to not sin. We are not born with that ability. Romans 3, 11, or 10 and following tells us that. Can you, can you toss it up there? Oh, there we go. This is us. None is righteous. That's the opposite of Adam and Eve. They were created as righteous. So none is righteous, no, not one. None understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's us. We cannot do good. We cannot, even in our best day, even for an unbeliever, even your best day, and you do something altruistic, you adopt some poor orphans from Cambodia, or you give money to hurricane relief, or whatever it is, you're not, you cannot do that with, an, with a posture of, I want to please God, because you don't know God. So even if you do something on the outward that is good, you can't do it with a seeking for God, because no one seeks for God. You don't do it for the glory of God. That's our condition. Jesus was different. He could only do righteousness, no ability to sin. 
But Adam and Eve had the ability to not sin, which they had the ability to sin, and of course we know that they did, but they had the ability to behave rightly towards people and creation and God. That's how they were made. Thirdly is holiness. Adam and Eve's affections were pure. They were free from sin, free from defilement. And they were created as the most holy and the most noble of all creation. They're the pinnacle. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. Why? Because they could volitionally, morally please God. The sun is not volitionally pleasing God. It's just doing what God made it to do without decision or emotion, right? It's just coming up and going down. Well, really, we're just staying stuck and we're going around it. But it's doing what it does. Gravity is not pleasing God volitionally or morally. So their holiness means they're entirely free from all disorder and distemper. They loved God. Truly, they did. Loved God for him. Their chief desire was for himself. Their chief delight was for God himself. Not for what God created for him. That's how they were made. That's their holiness. They're set apart and unmarred for the glory of God. They have no stain of immorality whatsoever. And then fourthly, they have dominion. We still do. So Genesis 1, 28 and 30 lays this out for us. And God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, every other living creature. I have given you every plant yielding seed. I've given it to you. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that breath of the Lord, I have given every green plant for food. I've given this to you. This is called the dominion mandate in Scripture. Have you ever thought to realize, when you hear all of the propaganda that comes from mainstream media and things about how cruel we are to animals, but have you ever stopped to think, you know what, we should maybe get some defenses up because they might try to make people zoos one day of the animals might try to come and make zoos and put us in them. Why is that not a threat to us? <laughs> Planet of the Apes, I know. That's why I like those movies because they wig you out. Uh, but, but we're not in any danger of animals creating people zoos, are we? Why? We have the dominion mandate, right? We have that. God did not make humans to serve nature. He made it nature to serve humans. That's how it was created. God didn't give this command to anything else. And he didn't say, hey, lions and bears and, and, and sharks and fish and pelicans, humans, you guys all have equal right to this planet I've made. Just behave. Keep to yourselves. You know, don't, if you, you know, don't cut down trees. If you see a squirrel nest in it, let me let it alone. Everybody's got equal share here. That's not what he said. He said, you subdue it and have dominion over it. That's how he created us. Human beings are not the scourge of the earth. But don't we hear that all the time? That if human beings were just gone, everything would be better. There wouldn't be pollution. There wouldn't be this deforestation. There wouldn't be trash islands in the ocean. There wouldn't be overfishing or overhunting or any extinct species as if the real issue that we need to be after is removing ourselves from the planet. That's, that's the end-all, be-all. The highest good is if you take human beings off the planet. 
Isn't that, that's, that's counter-biblical. That's anti-God to say that. We are not the problem of the planet. We are the solution for the planet. Should we pollute? Of course we shouldn't pollute. Should we care about it? Of course we could. I was reading Proverbs 12 the other day that the wise man has regard for his animal. So of course we don't abuse nature and animals. We subdue and have dominion over it. That means we order it. We take care of it. We, we are the ones ruling over it. We're not the scourge. We're the solution. So then lastly, think about, let's think about this. Why did God create all things? Well, it's for his glory. Revelation 4.11 tells us it's for his glory. That's why he created. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is he worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Because he created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's all for God's glory. So we tend to think at times in Western evangelicalism that God is our sugar daddy in the sky, and all he cares about is us having a really great time in his super wonderland that he made. It's not the end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all is not our happiness in creation. It's God's glory. That's why it exists, and we are a part of that. So to an extent, we have the same purpose for existence as dolphins and Jupiter and gravity. They all exist for the glory of God, but we have a higher purpose because we can do it volitionally, sing out praises to God. We aren't just obeying uh, DNA written into our code. I want to do this. I want to please you. And I can be like you in holiness and knowledge and righteousness and dominion in a way that animals can't, plants can't, heavenly bodies can't. We bear his image and we exercise his rule. That's the significance of it. We can give glory volitionally, not just because all water runs downhill, rivers give glory to God. We can say, look at rivers, and we can drink the water from it. We can be nourished. We can see God. We can know him and read him and discover him in his word. So that's the first two questions answering question eight. How does God execute his... Um, Decree. How does he ordain and do things? Well, it's through creation. So how did he create? And then how did he create man and, man and woman? Those are the two big ones. Next time, we're going to look at providence. But then question 13, because we didn't talk really any today about what all happened. Because it doesn't seem to be like this anymore. What happened? Well, that's question 13 that we get to that. All right. Let me pray for us. Any questions, though, on any of that? Okay, let me pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you and your wisdom, kindness created us. You didn't have to, but here we are. And you made us to know you. You've written your law in our hearts that even if we have no understanding of the gospel or no Bible in our language, we know that we don't want to be stolen from. And we know that we want people to be kind and merciful to us. That's your law written on our hearts. We are irrevocably image bearers. May we always view every human in that way, every person, that they bear your image and therefore they are worthy of dignity. Even the most vile hater of you bears your image and is worthy of dignity and respect even as we disagree, even as we disagree sharply with them. And Father, may we always, like all of creation, sing your praise and glorify you and that we do so volitionally and morally of our, of our own heart, that we bow the knee to you 
We're so thankful that you've made us able to approach you in those ways. Thank you for letting us worship here this evening. We ask that you'd send us into this week filled with your word and filled with the eyes locked onto your glory and with gratitude. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right.